Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Do you care about what other people think about you? In reality, all of us do in some measure, whether it's our friends or our family or our neighbors or someone we need to impress to get something from them. Author and journalist Will Storr has a new book on status and the decisions and behaviors it leads us all to. He joins today to talk about it on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. In a few minutes, we are going to talk with journalist and author Will Storr about his new book, The Status Game on Human Life and How to Play It. Really interesting conversation about the way that we let other people and their views of us influence our decisions and our behaviors. But up first, the pandemic threw a lot of things we knew about life into real chaos. People put on masks and had to quarantine. And during that chaos, one specific weakness of our economy was highlighted time and time again. And that's the vulnerability of our supply chains and specifically supply chain issues related to microchips, which run everything from your microwave oven to your car these days. The things that go into these computers and cars and so many products, they make up modern American life. And if we don't have them, we don't have those things, those luxuries that we are so used to. A new bill that passed the Senate on Wednesday in Washington attempts to alleviate that problem for microchip producers here in America, and it gives them more resources and funding to ultimately ease those supply chain issues. To help us understand what's in the bill and more, WDET's Nick Austin sat down with Senator Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat from here in Michigan, for Detroit Today. Senator Stabenow, welcome to Detroit Today. It's good to be with you. It's good to be with you. We're moving step by step here to bring jobs home and lower costs that have been created here by the pandemic, messing with our supply chains. Well, that's good news for us here, too. And I know Michigan's really concerned about that. And we want to get into what's happening with the CHIPS Act. As we see, the CHIPS and Science Act, or CHIPS Plus bill, includes roughly $52 billion in funding for U.S. companies producing computer chips, among other provisions. What will this funding specifically do for us here in Michigan and the U.S. generally? Well, overall, I mean, this is going to lower our costs. Right now, costs have gone up for used cars as well as new cars because um, there are fewer available because of these chips. We see acres and acres of cars and trucks just waiting to get final assembly because they don't have the 
the microchips. And so um, as we get these back fully online, it's going to bring down costs because we'll have more supply. It's also going to bring jobs home, which is something I've been focused on for a long time. We have these global supply chains that, you know, uh, companies have gone overseas thinking it was cheaper to get the parts someplace else and bring them back. And then we see what happens when the whole global economy shut down in a pandemic and we can't get what we need. So we need to be making things in America, the computer chips, the batteries for vehicles, uh, so many things. I mean, uh, you know, medical equipment and all kinds of things that we need to make it in America. So this is going to bring down our costs as consumers, bring these jobs home. And the other thing is national security, because a lot of what we're talking about relates to sophisticated communications that most of us aren't using. We're using them in national security and so on. We have to own this technology. If, if this technology ends up being made in China or other places uh, where they could shut us down, I mean, we're very, very vulnerable on the national security front. So we're going to bring down costs, bring jobs home, and this is going to strengthen our uh, national security. And I will say it's not only at these new manufacturing facilities – that will be built for, they call them fabrication facilities or fabs. It's not just building uh, about up to a dozen more of those in our country, but we're creating new manufacturing hubs that are going to focus on research and development. You know, this is one of the strengths of Michigan, and we have some in Detroit now that were set up during the Obama administration to be leaders in the materials that we use and, you know, various kinds of component parts and so on. And so there's a major piece of this that is the science part of the bill that's going to fund our universities and partnerships and to create new cutting-edge technology and probably things we haven't even thought of yet. I mean, we need to be ahead of the curve here in terms of, you know, what's happening on technology. So this is all good. And the other thing that I would say is that we're reacting to part of what has happened during this pandemic. A year and a half ago, we were focused on just saving people's lives and getting children back into school and saving small businesses and restaurants and so on. So we get through all of that where we can manage COVID. And then we see what has happened with all these supply chain breakdowns that have driven up costs, as well as some parts of the economy taking advantage of that, like the oil companies who are definitely have been price gouging. So we got to bring these parts back. That's what this is about. Make it in America, create the jobs here, and then put ourselves in a position where we won't find ourselves with this kind of challenge in the economy if something happens in the future. Senator Stabenow, I'm glad you brought up the uh, manufacturing portion of the bill and investing in science and universities. And from what I'm hearing from you, it's also open-ended, allowing for money to be spent in areas that we don't know we will need in the future. One of the things I did have a question about, and I know a lot of listeners do, is uh, other than the items that you mentioned, where else is this $52 billion being invested? And can you let us know how it's being apportioned to these different areas? Sure. Well, there's a couple of parts of the bill. The, the uh, $52 billion is specifically to partner with uh, manufacturers to create these fabrication facilities, these fabs. And one of the things that I saw once when this was first being talked about, they were talking about national security, very important, but they weren't talking about manufacturing. And so I leaned in very, very hard 
and negotiate to make sure specifically, because there's different kinds of chips, the ones we need for manufacturing, not just autos, but we, we make appliances, we make a lot of things, and those kinds of chips um, have more safety requirements. It, it, um, it, it is a different kind of chip. So I mean, then first thing to make sure that the language and the funding would go to what we need um, in Michigan. But in addition to the $52 billion, the science provisions is actually a larger long-term commitment. Altogether, we're looking at um, over $100 billion that's going to uh, go to the National Science Foundation to set up these what we're calling technology hubs and um, at science you know, uh, investments for the universities and so on, both looking at the materials and the new technologies, communication technologies, the vehicle technologies. We're right now leading on not just electric vehicles, but autonomous vehicles, those vehicles that actually drive themselves, which is a little weird, but is yeah. definitely a part of our future. Right. And, uh, and actually, Actually safer, they say, than all of us getting behind the wheel and, and making a mistake. But all this technology, communication technology, automation technology that's coming, and we want to maintain in Michigan the leadership on this. So there's a lot of different ways that this will happen. And we also are putting money into what's called the Manufacturing Extension Partnership, which helps small manufacturers, small, medium-sized manufacturers. Uh, we we want to make sure that we're really growing our small businesses and supporting them. So it's very broad. It's about the future, really, in America. Our companies right now are competing against countries. When you look at China putting $150 billion in electric vehicle technology alone, and it's all government funding, you know, in every area, it's hundreds of billions of dollars. We need to be doing what we do in America, which is partnership, private sector, public sector, partnering in this to do the research and development to make sure the manufacturing is here, which is the piece we haven't been doing, and really making sure we are leading on the next steps as it relates to uh, technology. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin speaking with Senator Debbie Stabenow. And Senator Stabenow, you mentioned in discussing this CHIPS Plus bill, this CHIPS Plus Act, that price gouging is happening by uh, the oil companies. Uh, And that's something that I've heard and a lot of our listeners have heard a lot. Is there anything that the Senate, is there anything that you are looking to do about this price gouging that you mentioned for us? Well, this is maddening to me because basically the oil companies in the international market, um, they set the prices and they control where they're going to drill and how much they're going to drill and what's happening. Um, There is not right now a way for the federal government to come in and and tap that. So there's a number of things I'm supporting. One is a windfall profits tax if they're going to gouge people and and make – which they are, hundreds of billions of dollars in excess profits, they should pay excess tax on that, and it should go back to consumers to lower their prices. Um, We also know that there's about 9,000 leases on public lands in America that the oil companies have that they've just chosen not to drill on to create more supply, because less supply means they can have higher prices. So there's a bill that's called Use It or Lose It that says if you don't use the lease, then you need to give it up to another company that will. So there there are um, 
uh, a number of things that, that can happen. I will say the president, by uh, releasing oil from the strategic oil reserve, he put more oil into the marketplace. He's been pressing and calling out the companies. We are seeing prices come down. That's good, 50, 60, 70 cents. But they could be coming down much faster than they are right now, even at a time when the underlying economy has brought back 9 million jobs faster than at any other time. Unemployment's down, wages up. The underlying economy is strong, but there are supply chain breakdowns, too much consolidation in the food industry and so on, which we're trying to fix. We're just going to keep that at one sector by another to get our handle on this because people are just paying, paying too much. Speaking of bills that are in Congress and speaking of things that are important to Michiganders, right now the House passed a same-sex and interracial marriage bill to prevent the Supreme Court from potentially violating these rights of Americans. Where will that go in the Senate? Do we expect it to pass? Well, this is something I strongly support. I think the right to privacy for all of us is very important, whether it's a woman being able to decide our own health care decisions, certainly our most uh, private health care decisions on reproduction, or whether it's who uh, we choose to marry, who we choose to love. Those are private decisions. And for years now, uh, you know, decades, we've, we've had uh, the Supreme Court come down on the side of privacy. And now we have a new, very, very unfortunate, uh, radically conservative court who's now decided that group of politicians should decide that for us. So at the moment, we're working to get the votes we need in the Senate to pass it. And if we um, can't, then we need to put different members of Congress in who will vote to protect people's privacy. Well, I know you have things to do to keep working on that and get bills passed, uh, Senator Stabenow. Before I let you go, however, I have to ask, how are the blueberries in Washington? Oh, I have to tell you, as I told you, you know, I love blueberries, and they are not as good in D.C. They they get them from New Jersey. God bless New Jersey, but they're not as good as Michigan. So I come home every weekend and eat our Michigan blueberries. <laughs> All right. Well, we and the blueberries are waiting for you when you get back. Uh, Senator Stabenow, thanks so much for joining us again today on Detroit Today. My pleasure. Take care. That was WDET's Nick Austin speaking with... Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow on Detroit Today. Coming up, we are going to talk about why, as humans, we are constantly trying to get by and get ahead. Status, what it means and what it drives us to do. Author and journalist Will Storr will join us next to talk about his new book. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. So when you think of some of the happiest moments of your life, who's in those moments? Maybe those moments are when you're out. 
going to see a movie with your friends. Or you're playing in a friendly game of pickup basketball. Maybe it's when you're celebrating holidays like Christmas or Thanksgiving. This is all to say that when we do things with other people, we enjoy them more than when we do them by ourselves. That's because we are inherently social creatures. And as part of that, we just want to get along with other people. But importantly, we also want to get ahead of other people. We want to feel like we're getting further than the people that we know, the people in our lives. That's at least the thesis behind author Will Storr's latest book, The Status Game. In it, he argues that humans are wired, obsessed even, with status. That in everything we do, work or school, sports or volunteering, we are acutely aware of where we stand compared to others. And importantly, we also desire others' approval and affection. Now, that may seem obvious, but if it's true, it carries really deep consequences for us all. If it's status that drives us, then lots of other things maybe matter less. Under this model, people might become great scientists and business owners more for the adulation than the payout. Union workers might want dignity and respect more than they want raises. And voters might cast their ballots on behalf of their social outlook, where they think they stand in America, as opposed to what's in their best interest. Think about it. Think about all the people who vote against their material self-interest because they fear their own social group will lose out behind others. Now, if it's true that our drive for high status is critical to the human experience, it demands us asking some big questions. How can we prevent this desire to climb social ladders from getting the best of us? And how can we design a world that aligns with our desire for status without maybe hurting those closest to us? Are there other ways to think about our place in the world and our connection and relationship to other people? Will Storr is an accomplished journalist and a really great writer, and this book is absolutely fascinating, and I'm really pleased to welcome here with us on Detroit Today. Will, welcome to the program. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for that great introduction. Thank you. So you argue that we're all in games where we're competing for status, and this is essentially all-encompassing. We can't get away from it. Uh, describe what you mean by that, and also give us some really concrete examples of the kind of status-seeking you're talking about here. Yeah, so I, I think it's important to kind of um, put aside some sort of common objections that come up when I talk about this. And, uh, and I think some of the most common objections are that when we're talking about status, um, uh, we, we're thinking about, I want to be rich, I want to be famous, and all these, um, you know, all these kind of obvious things. 
that, 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 that's not exactly what we're saying. I mean, what, what the feeling of having status is, is, is simply that the, we, we have value to other people. That's separate from being loved and liked by people, is that we're also we are, we're a valuable member of our tribe. And so what psychologists find is that that is um, a, a fundamental, that, that if we're going to be um, psychologically and even um, physically well uh, as people, if we're going to be happy and healthy, um, it's critical that we feel um, valued by other people. Um, but, of course, the, 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 then the, the question is, how do we know that we're valued? Right. And the answer is in a million different ways. <laughs> um, so, you know, the brain has what some psychologists call a, a status detection system. So it's constantly looking out at the world for um, clues, for um, evidence that we're valued. And it's constantly on alert for um, clues and evidence that people don't value us. And, and, and that's where this kind of you know, unconscious obsession comes along. And, that, you know, that's why when, um, you know, when somebody might cut us up on the road, which is just, so what? It doesn't matter. Um, it, it, it's common for people to get um, really upset, you know, um, irrationally upset uh, about that uh, it, because the brain subconsciously takes that as a challenge, challenge to our status. Um, it, there's a, there was quite a funny study that I quote in the book where they looked at... Um, um, people are being poured measures of orange juice, and if if you pour some, if you pour lots of measures measures of orange juice for people, but one person gets slightly less than the other people, that one person who got slightly less will become you know irrationally upset about the fact <laughs> that how come I got less orange juice than everybody else? And that's because it's not just about uh, you know I, I, I was shorted one mouthful of orange juice. I mean, who cares about one mouthful of orange juice? Obviously, you know the brain is picking it up as a, um, as a um, you know, me- measure of status. And indeed, when, you, when, when um, uh, researchers do studies on um, things like, you, know, you mentioned in your introduction about um, union members, and you know, th- there was a major study in the UK of 15,000 people, and they found that most people would forego a pay rise in order to have a job title that was more statusful, hmm. you know, sort of, sort of an uptick in job title. Um, so, 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 so there's lots of evidence there that, that actually, you, you know, I, once, once we're earning enough money to survive and be okay and heat our, our homes and feed our children, uh, you know, every, everything above that tends to be status. Yeah. So when we think about status in that way, um, who, are the, who are the people that are most important to us? when we're thinking about how they think about us. I mean, I think, um, you know, all of us care what our families think about us and all of us care what our friends think about us. But I think you're talking about something maybe a little different than that even. It it, it is this this sort of communal judgment, I guess, that we feel on ourselves all the time about, again, how important we are or, or, or whether we matter. Um, is is it that we have this kind of abstract idea of people who we think think of us in one way and not so much uh, the people that we actually have influence over uh, and and who who matter in our lives? Well, we care we, we care most about the people who are closest to us. Um, so, so, so the people we share our lives with, um, you know, that, that's who we, you know, we're, we're a tribal animal, we evolved in, in relatively small groups, and, and we care about what our group thinks about us. 
So as I say in the book, you know, we're not all competing with Michelle Obama or Beyonce. (laughs) (laughs) And if we were all competing with Michelle Obama and Beyonce, we'd we'd just have a collective nervous breakdown because there's just no way that that we can compete with with status on that level. You know, know, so so, so the status game that I'm describing isn't one game. It's it's infinite games. And so you can think about any, any group that you're a member of in your life. It, 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 it's, it's going to be a status game. So whether you identify as a mum or a dad or, um, or, or uh, uh, you know, as a member of a political party or as a, an employee of a particular group or maybe you have a hobby or you play in a sports team, in, in every human group there's a kind of hierarchy. Uh, you know, depending on how well you play by the rules, how much you achieve in that, in that group, um, your status goes up. The people, people look at you as if you are, you are a more valuable individual. Mm. So, so it's the people that we're playing those games with that we, that we care most about, you know, to answer your question directly. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the people we're playing sports with, it's the people that we are going to work with. And, and, and I, think, I, I think, this is, you know, the, the book is much more about life outside the family. I think, I, I think life inside the family, of course, there's power struggles and status struggles within families. Uh, everybody knows, you know, <laughs> that, that's true. <laughs> but, 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 but really, this is much more about, the book is much more about human social life. So, so it's about the political groups. It's about the hobbies. It's about the, um, you know, the jobs that we do, the, 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 the sports games that we play. It, it, it's all that stuff. Um, and, and the, you know, the, the, the results in psychology are, are fairly significant that, um, you know, the more games we play, the, the happier and more stable we are. Emotionally, so, 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 so because because we have multiple sources of status in the world. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with journalist and author Will Store. He has a book out called "The Status The Status Game uh, on Human Life and How to Play It." Uh, we're talking about status and the role it plays in our lives. How much we think about what other people think about us and how that influences our decisions and our behaviors. Uh, We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. How much do you think the drive for higher status dictates our lives? Is that something you spend a lot of time thinking about, where you stand in comparison to other people uh, is that something you react to frequently? The idea that perhaps your status is not quite where you think it should be, or maybe is falling in a way that you find distressing. Uh, have you noticed yourself trying to get along with and succeed within a group that you think of as yours, uh, the place where you think you belong in the world? Uh, who, who do you, what do you think is uh, yourself at the healthiest level, I guess, of competition? Is that something that you relish or is that something that you kind of dread and maybe have some anxiety about. We want to hear from you on the phones, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, to Twitter, and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Also, give us a shout if you don't care about status. If you think you're somebody who just kind of uh, does your own thing and doesn't really spend a lot of time worrying about what other people might think about you. Let us know how that works and how you avoid, I guess, this status game that uh, 
that we almost instinctively seem to play as as humans. Again, 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag debate today, and we can include you in the conversation. Before we get to our listeners, Will, I want to talk about social media because I think uh, there is something about social media uh, – both inherently and uh, in terms of the way that we have come to use it, that that makes it a really powerful influence on this. So first of all, uh, on a platform like Facebook or Twitter, this idea of friends or followers and how many you have is absolutely, I mean, it's a very naked I think display of the kind of of status that uh, um, that that I think people crave, and and I think the mediums make us crave it even more. I mean, this constant checking of that is is something that I I, I feel lots of us do. But but then in a in a broader sense, the idea of belonging and this idea of uh, you know, affinity groups, uh, I think, is also uh, reinforced by social media and maybe accelerated by it. It seems to me that you can't talk about this issue today without really acknowledging that things have changed because of social media. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it, as you know, in the book, I talk about there are, there are three different kind of types of status game. There are three different paths to status in human in the human world, or, or, or major ones. Uh, the first one is dominance, and, and that's what we share with you know, lots of animals. You, 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 force, you can force people with kind of aggression or the threat of it to attend to you uh, in status. Uh, the second one is virtue. You can be a virtuous person. So, so, so you, know, you, you, can, you can be somebody that follows the rules, enforces the rules, knows the rules. Um, and then finally, with success and competence, you can be, you can be good at something. And, you know, and this, this goes back... Um, you know, tens of thousands of years to the very beginning of you know, human existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at social media, that, that, that's what you see in social media. That's what social media is. It's, it's, it's those three types of status game, dominance, virtue, and success, yeah. made over and over and over again. And I think you know, that, that, that kind of, to me, explains why it's, social media has been so universally and suddenly successful, is that you know, our, our need for status is, is universal. And um, so that's why it's as popular in China and you know, Vietnam as it is in America and um, in the UK. Um, it's cross-cultural, um, um, this, the success of social media. Um, and, and it is really powerful because it's a, you know, it, it, we love status and it's a new way, of, it's a new way that, we can, that, we, that we can get status. I mean, you, know, we, you, you can be somebody that's just an ordinary person in an ordinary town living an ordinary life, but on social media you have this huge amount of status. You have X amount of followers Maybe you've got a blue tick, which is a big status symbol. <laughs> you know, you're a verified person. So, 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 people, so for some people, social media becomes extremely important to them because status is extremely important to them. And, and it, it, it's an enormous, it can be an enormous source of status for people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Twitter, uh, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, I want to start with a social media comment. Big Neo says, what's it called when someone truly does not care about their status with others? He says, I've been an outsider my whole life, even within my own home growing up, and I really don't care 
about what others think about me. I, I did shout out to, to ask people who don't care about status to, to talk with us, Will. Um, is that believable? And I guess, how do we get to that, I guess, if, if, if that's the ideal is to, to care less or to not well, care at all? Yeah, I mean, it's not, I mean, for me, it's not, in a sense, I think it's definitely true that some people care more about status than other people. Like, like, like any human trait, there's a spectrum, and some people really, really care a lot about status. And certainly, you know, Beyonce, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, <laughs> these are people that care a lot about status, and it's easy to see that they do that, much more, more so than the average person. And I would argue that it's that, it's, it's that very kind of hunger for it, which is part of, partly what's driven their amazing success. Um, um, uh, and they're a person like, you know, that, that, like this caller uh, uh, who, who um, doesn't feel that they, that they care about what other people think. Um, but, but, but I think that it, it, for me, they, they just care probably less than average what other people think. Um, but it, it's not to say they don't care at all. I mean, for a start, they've taken the time to come in and tell us that they don't care about status. So they, they seem to care what we think about, <laughs> about their needs of status. And, and just a basic observation that if you really truly didn't care about what other people thought about you, you'd probably be in prison right now because you wouldn't be following the social rules at mm -hmm. all. I mean, status games are all about, you know, games are all about rules. Here's the rules by which we play and award status. And if you truly don't care about the rules of human social life, you're, you're, you're probably going to be in prison or a psychiatric hospital. So I totally understand what, what, why some people might, might like feel that they don't care at all about um, what other people think. But my suspicion, my very strong suspicion, is that they do care, but they just care less than the average person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go to the phones. Nancy in Dearborn, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Hey. And um, thanks so much for this topic. I was actually thinking about this this morning before I turned on the radio. Um, I think in the arts and creative world in particular, we many of us struggle to find voice, acceptance, approval. Mm -hmm. uh, and then on the other level, I have a big concern about the tribal mentality in which we don't allow other people who are struggling for the same thing to be heard. And that has troubled me a great deal. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to broaden, uh, in my own life, trying to broaden the access to different voices and people's creative abilities. Yeah. Uh, Nancy, I'm really glad you called and uh, and suggested that space as a, a of particular interest. Uh, Will, you and I are, are journalists. We're writers. Uh, we haven't talked about the incredible influence of status in uh, our line of work, which is creative, right? It is mm. part of the creative world that Nancy's talking about. And I, I, I agree with her. I think it is particularly uh, important in that world and can be particularly particularly vicious. Uh, yeah, what is it about creativity, I guess, that, that drives us to, to really want approval but also uh, want to, to, to be in a category that uh, we think is more exalted than where other people are? Well, I, th I think creative people, you know, like, like, like all people are, you know, uh, we, we are pursuing status, but, but, it, but there's just different ways of measuring status. Like if you're a banker on Wall Street or maybe a big shot lawyer, or say you're a banker on Wall Street, you're measuring your status with how much money you make. It's a straightforward money-based game. 
But we, but you know, Lord knows in the creative industries, we know that money isn't <laughs> isn't the way that we really measure status. You know, certainly as a writer, as an author, isn't the, isn't the way I can possibly measure status because I'd probably want to throw myself out of the window. It's much more about, um, you know, what, what did the New York Times say about my book? Did they say anything about my book? You know, that is that kind of thing. That's how we're measuring status. So, so creative people are, I think, are really a good example of that idea that that status is is more important than money to. To people, mm-hmm. you know, money isn't why you get into journalism. Lord knows, <laughs> and you know, when Nancy was talking, you know, the the the, the words that kind of um, that, that kind of resonated with me was the idea of being heard. Of you know, especially Mars my school being heard. Mm. You know, the the the, the, the very. Um, uh, the very act of being heard is a sign of status. Like in, in the groups in which we I- evolved, you know, one way that people, um, you could tell who were the high status people in that group uh, were that they were literally heard more. They spoke more, people attended to them more, uh, they were listened to more. And, and, I, and I think that's so important to people. That, that, that's part of how people feel like they are of value, uh, that, that, that people sit down and listen to them and listen to what they've got to say. So I think being heard is absolutely at the core of um, feeling like a, like, like a human being who has status, who has value. And, um, you know, more, more power to Nancy if she's helping people who yeah. are struggling to be heard and you know, have that essential experience of being alive. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation, this really interesting conversation with journalist and author Will Storr about his book, The Status Game. We'll also get to more of your social media comments and to you on the phones, uh, Lizbeth in Detroit, Kathy in Ann Arbor. We will hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. And again, you can go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Will Storr, a journalist and author who has a book out called The Status Game. Uh, is taking a look at the way status, the way that we think of status, drives our decisions and our behaviors. Uh, the obsessing we do with what others think about us, the obsessing we do about which affinity groups uh, we're a part of, and in some ways, which groups we can exclude other people from. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Tell us how this plays a role in uh, in your life, uh, or if you think it does. Um, also, give us a sense of how you maybe counteract the influence of uh, this, this notion of status in your life. What are the things that you do to try to make uh, other things matter more. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to the phones here. Lizbeth in Detroit, uh, what's on your mind? 
Hey there. Uh, yeah, I was calling in to say status is seriously a huge thing, not only in my family, but in my life. Uh, about a decade ago, I was on America's Next Top Model, lost majority of my hair, made it to like oh top goodness. six. That pretty much crippled me uh, mentally when it came to the fashion world. Then, uh, you know, my cousins, we start from Harvard, then Stanford, then Pepperdine, MIT, <laughs> Carnegie Mellon. Myself, I'm currently attending Oakland University here in Michigan. Um, you know, I did go to UT in Texas, but it's like, if you don't go to Harvard, you know, you're not nothing here. You know, it's like (laughs) my grandmother is telling my 13 year old daughter that she has to go to Harvard now. It's like the generation doesn't change. It's like, if you don't make it to the top, then you're not accepted. You know, it's doesn't Mm. matter what, what part of the field you try, you know, school or fashion or anything, you know, and I'm a parent of two and it's like, you never know, are you on the top or are you at the bottom? Hmm. Where do you fit in? You know, I don't know if education is most important. Is beauty more important? You know, being a woman in America is pretty confusing. Yeah. Uh, So, so it sounds like you've, you've changed the way you kind of grapple with that over time. And, and I'm really sorry to hear about, uh, uh, about the fashion experience you had, uh, how has that changed for you over time? Do you feel like you're better able to to sort it out now than when you were it younger? Really uh, messed up my identity. Um, the status thing, uh, want to be on top. You know that was the whole motto of the show, and it's kind of like uh, <laughs> once I lost all my hair, I was called a transvestite by Zach Posen. A bunch of things happened that really crippled my mentality, and oh, I didn't goodness. know where I fit fit in as a woman. Um, with no hair uh, and a child that said I look like Dada at the time. Mm. It was a very confusing moment in life. It's like, am I, you know, more masculine now? Is that my status? Am I more feminine now? Is that my status? You know, am I more of a dominant woman, a feminine woman? Do I play a more motherly role? Do I wear a dress with no hair? Like, it was very confusing. But then I pushed it more towards uh, education, you know, um, because my family pushes education. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my cousin, I don't want to names, but she did graduate Harvard. She's been in Newsweek with Oprah, uh, worked for Google. The next one down, he's a few months older than me, went to Carnegie Mellon. Very, very smart. Now he works for uh, Dallas Cowboys in film directing. And so next is me, top model, and then had a child. Everything came to a (laughs) crashing halt. And the one after me is Pepperdine. And the one after that, uh, you know, it just goes on and on. If you don't do your very best, you just aren't really accepted. And you get dropped like a fly. My family would never confess that out loud. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I really appreciate the call and your candor here about uh, the the role that plays in your life. Really appreciate you calling in. Uh, Will Storr, this sounds very much like competition, you know, extreme competition, but but it does it does connect to to the idea of of this idea of status. And what's interesting to me about the call is the difficulty kind of identifying um, you know, what status you're you're striving for and and what you're trying to to accomplish. I think there's a lot of that in our country right now. Yeah, yeah, there's certainly a lot of that over in the UK too. And it's, you know, we, we are, you know, um, countries that kind of value, um, you know, what Elizabeth is describing there is um, competence-based success. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the book I call success games. And, and you know, the success games have, have, have driven modernity and civilization. You know, the, the, it sounds like the best got some incredibly 
high achievers in her family who have made well, and are making you know genuinely great contributions to society and culture. But with that comes a comes a cost, and and I think that's one of the sobering things for me when I was doing you know my, my research into the book was that was that you. I think you know you can have this very, very naive view of high achieving people who are perhaps quite wealthy and you know go to these great universities and have these great experiences, but life can be really tough in those worlds because they are so competitive. And as Elizabeth so eloquently describes, you know when you're if you don't achieve the minimum requirement for status in those groups, then then you know you don't have any status, and that for any human being is is extremely disturbing and extremely upsetting. Yeah. Um, the other thing that, that, that struck me from what Elizabeth said was that, um, you know, this idea of, of shifting from, potentially shifting from, you know, the fashion world into education. And, and, I, and I think that's a, that, that, that's, a, that, that's a healthy approach. And, and as I said before, I think, you know, the, I think the reason that psychologists find that the more groups we belong to, the happier and more stable we are is because we have multiple sources of status. And I think that's one of the things I advocate for in the book is that, is that, you know, when the going gets tough in the status game, do you consider leaving? <laughs> Find a new game to play. Right. Uh, you know, that's something that we learn as we grow up. You right. know, one basic way that humans play for status is beauty. Um, but, but it's very hard for somebody, you know, I'm 47. I don't look like I did when I was, uh, you know, 21. And, 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 and uh, lots of us get caught up in trying to compete with the young in, in status games of beauty. And, mm-hmm. and, and, it, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a game you can never win. And so, and so, you know, I think part of the thing we learned as we're growing up is that we have to find different games to play because otherwise it's just a recipe for, you know, misery and the feeling of failure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Elizabeth, uh, thanks so much for the call and, and again for your incredible mm-hmm. candor. Uh, let's go to Kathy in Ann Arbor. Kathy, what's on your Hi. mind? Hey. Hi. Um, I had a question about, he said that he was talking about status and how it, it, it plays out games and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm really curious about, he said it's beyond when you're just trying to do survival, you know, just trying to uh, meet your needs. Mm-hmm. And then, but so it just makes me curious about how it plays out from the multitudes of people who now are just trying, scrambling to survive uh, as opposed to people who have achieved so much that they have extreme amounts of power, and then they, you know, there's this class game going on, uh, so that, you know, some people aren't even surviving, much less being able to play any kind of game. Mm. Mm. And then whereas other people are so competitive within their groups, they're not even acknowledging, they're not even recognizing, they're not even um knowing that people can't afford home and shelter and food and stuff like that because they're just too involved in their own status game. Sure. Kathy, I I love what you're saying here, and and I really appreciate the call. Uh, Will Storr, we haven't talked a lot about how this all connects to the profound inequality that we live with uh, in America and in, and in the UK. Uh, right. Status is, is an aggravator, I feel. Uh, of, yeah, of that in a I, and I think, I, mean, so I think one of the ways that this, the understanding how this works changed the way I see the world in this sense. What, 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 what was, you know, when you start off with that, with that understanding that, that we all need status, you know, and we start, really start playing these status games when we're in, when we're in adolescence, that's when we sort of leave the family and join the groups. 
I, I think I, I think one of the way one of the reasons it's, it's it's so difficult when you come from a lower socioeconomic group is that your sources of status are much more deprived. So if you're a middle class person or a, or an upper class person who goes to university and they have this, they can choose the courses, they can choose the hobbies, they can choose the evening classes. You've got all this choice of I, I can play this game, play this game, play this game. Mm-hmm. But when you're um, from a socioeconomically deprived area, um, you just don't have that choice. And, and that, to me, changed the way, you know, in the UK, and I know in the, in the US too, you have similar problems with, you know, gang culture, with um, young uh, men, especially from Islamic backgrounds, joining terrorist groups. Um, you, you know, you've got to ask yourself, for, for, for these young men, need status like everybody else needs status. Mm. And, and, and if you're a young man growing up in South London, um, you know, on, 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 a, on a difficult estate, um, what are your sources of status? You know, you can go and work in the local supermarket, stacking shelves, or you can join this gang that's dealing drugs. You know, if you, if you want status, and people do want status, um, you're probably going to join the gang. And, 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 and so that really changed the way that I saw, you know, we, we look at these kind of ideas, as, these behaviors as, as criminal, but from the perspective of status, you can also, I, th- I think, you know, see it with a bit more empathy and just understand that these are just young people with a paucity of options mm-hmm. uh, and uh, unable to get what they need out of the world because they have no choices. So, 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 so yeah, I think, um, you know, there's definitely that kind of political angle to all this. And I, and I think, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating way of seeing um, some of the issues that are around, um, you know, being socioeconomically deprived. Yeah. It isn't just about money. Yeah. You, know, they, 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 you know, of course we need to survive. We need money to live and buy food and all of that stuff. But we also need to feel of value. And, and that's also a way that people can be massively impoverished because the world makes them feel as if they have no value. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got about a minute and a half left, uh, Will, but I want to give you a chance to talk about the kind of rules we should be constructing to lower the things that, that drive our obsession with, with status. How do, we, how do we turn this in a different direction? So, um, yeah, in the book I sort of delineate, I kind of say what the kind of worst kinds of games are and the best kinds of games are. <laughs> so for me, the worst kinds of games are what I call dominance virtue games. And those are the games where we're, where we're playing uh, games of virtue, which, is, which sounds good. Um, you know, it means that we are thinking in the, in the moral space, we're enforcing moral rules on other people. Um, but, but when it's mixed with dominance, it means that we're forcing other people to kind of attend to our, our particular moral codes. So you can think, think of the Nazis and the communists who are playing virtue dominance games who are forcing other people to play by Nazi rules and play by communist rules. So the worst kinds of games are these dominance virtue games. And the best kinds of games are what I describe as, as, as um, uh, kind of success, well, virtue success games. So success games are about competence, about being really fantastic at something. And when you mix that in with a kind of virtue element, that, that, that means that you're competing for status by you know, inventing vaccines that are, are going to you know, get us out of the COVID pandemic. You're running a marathon um, for breast cancer. You know, you're, you're, you're using your competence and your expertise as a human being, your strength as a human being, um, to achieve some virtuous end. So, 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 so I think we should be, you know, generally speaking, playing success games. I think there's too much emphasis on virtue. It's, I know it sounds weird to say, but the world has changed for the better by people actually exercising competence by solving problems 
Uh, those are the people that, are make, you know, that, that really make the world a much better place, I, I, I believe. Yeah. And especially when you mix that in with this kind of virtue thing. So, you know, it's not, just, it's not really about being Elon Musk. It's about being Elon Musk, you know, with a bit of a halo. But yeah. Those are the best games. Yeah. Okay. Will Storr, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today to talk about uh, your book and to talk about the influence of status in uh, all of our lives. Thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you. It's a pleasure. A great conversation. And thanks to all the callers. Yes, yes. Okay, that is going to do it for us this week. Uh, tune in on Monday. We're going to talk about a new book about why many immigrants to the U.S. succeed after they've moved to this country. Really important topic here in southeast Michigan, given all the people we welcome to our community from all over the world. Uh, of course, next week is election week as well, and uh, we will continue talking about the August 2nd primary on election day of course uh, but then on the day after we'll sort through all the results this is 1019 WDETFM Detroit's NPR station your connection to news music and conversation we'll talk again on Monday